In early um, 2007, not that long ago, um, Oscar-winning director James Cameron, he's probably most famous, uh, most known for his movie The Titanic. He's done some others. James Cameron, along with an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, uh, and his name is Simcha Jacobovici, they held a press conference together in New York to promote a film that they had produced for the Discovery Channel entitled The Lost Tomb of Jesus. You may remember the splash that it made at the time. Um, it was sure to be the end of Christianity as we know it. During the press conference, they displayed some ossuaries, which are uh, bone boxes. That were, these ossuaries were discovered in Jerusalem during some excavation for a construction project. And they made the claim that the boxes came from the family tomb of Jesus and that one of the boxes actually contained the bones of Jesus. This announcement actually caused a sensation, uh, mostly because of who made it. James Cameron is one of the most successful filmmakers in Hollywood history. But in reality, the discovery was nothing new. The tomb and its contents were discovered in 1980 by some construction workers who were digging a foundation for a new building there in Jerusalem. And they immediately turned over, as is common in ancient cities in the Middle East in particular, common in Jerusalem, they, they turned over the find to professional archaeologists and uh, the group that... Um, they turned it over to was led by a man named Professor Amos Cloner of Bar Lam University there in Israel. The tomb contained 10 limestone ossuaries, bone boxes, and six of the 10 had names scratched on them. Here are some of the names. Jesus, the son of Joseph, Matthew, Jaffa, Judah, the son of Jesus, and two with the name of Mary. So Professor Cloner, however, he, he never made any attempt to associate the find with Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that we know and worship. Um, and he had a couple of reasons for this, and the first is that we know that Joseph, the, the supposed father of Jesus, he was a humble carpenter who could not have afforded a luxury tomb in the city of Jerusalem. Um, and then second, the name Jesus was so common among Jews in the first century that it actually appears on 98 other tombs and 21 other ossuaries that archaeologists have found in the modern era only. So after the press conference, when they were trying to make a big deal about finding Jesus' family tomb and even, even a bone box with his name on it, Professor Cloner, the archaeologist who was actually doing the research, he called the claims of these two filmmakers nonsense. And he went on to say this, It makes for a great TV uh, story for a TV film, but it's impossible. There is no likelihood that Jesus and his relatives had a family tomb. They were a Galilee family with no ties to Jerusalem. This tomb belonged to a middle-class family. I refute all of their claims and efforts to waken a renewed interest in the finding. With all due respect, they are not archaeologists. 
There was another man named Josias. He was the curator for anthropology and archaeology at the, at the Rockefeller Museum there in Jerusalem from the early 70s to the late 90s. And he personally cataloged the ossuaries. And he was very harsh in his evaluation of the claims made by these filmmakers. He said they have no credibility whatsoever. Projects like these make a mockery of the archaeological profession. Now, here's why I'm telling you this. The world knows that if, if it can undermine the resurrection, then they can undermine Christianity. Now, it's actually not a tactic that that the world uses all that much these days. I think there are a couple of reasons for this, but probably the biggest reason is that the world, by and large, actually has very little knowledge of the Bible. And so they simply, usually what happens is they just throw the law at Christians. How come you're not keeping this law or that law without any real understanding of the purpose of the law or Jesus' fulfillment of it? But this idea of trying to deny Christ's resurrection is actually as old as the resurrection. Matthew chapter 28, verses 10 to 15, gives us a little tidbit of history. Immediately after Christ's resurrection, when Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary in the garden, Matthew tells us this, Matthew 28, 10, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, referring to the, the stone being rolled away and all of that. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So for almost all of history, there have been those who have denied Jesus Christ's resurrection. Or like the Sadducees, there are those who have denied any resurrection or any afterlife at all. And so it should come as no surprise to us that the world will try to undermine the basis of the gospel, the foundation of our faith. But what happens when those who claim to be Christians do this? What happens when those who claim to be a part of the church or a church say that Christ never rose? There's actually a growing minority of those who claim the name Christian and yet actually deny an actual physical resurrection. So a couple of years ago, Serene Jones, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York, told the New York Times this, president of Union Theological Seminary said this, when you look at the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves, Jones said. Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. 
But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that a reason for hope? Not according to the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read verses 12 to 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 says this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if there is no We did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's stop and pray. Father, I pray that pray that I would decrease and Christ would increase. I pray that you'd give us what we need today. Lord, we know that our greatest need is Christ. I pray that you would feed us today from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I would, I would guess, and this is it's kind of an educated guess, I would guess that the president of Union Theological Seminary is probably not a fan of the Apostle Paul. That's usually how it works. If you don't like one uh, portion or accept one portion of Scripture, you can also justify throwing out other portions that you don't agree with as well. And the Apostle Paul is generally at the top of that list for people. So this passage that we're looking at today, it isn't really aimed at atheists. It isn't really aimed at at those other enemies of the church out there. We could even say it's not directed at the president of the Union Theological Seminary, who I believe is an enemy of the church. In fact, this is written to Christians, to church members, who sit in the pews week after week and, and listen to sermons, sometimes delivered by someone who attended Union Theological Seminary or some such institution the questions whether or not Christ literally came back from the dead, delivered by someone who who questions the the truth and and the trustworthiness of the eyewitness accounts that have been handed down to us. See, it's important to remember this morning that in this passage, Paul is still addressing the church at Corinth. He's correcting those in the church who claim the name of Christ, yet are beginning, at least, to deny the the concept, the theological concept of the resurrection. So Paul has just claimed in the opening 11 verses of this chapter that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was, was an historical fact that had been foretold and, uh, by and throughout the Scriptures and had been witnessed by several credible people, including himself. And this message is the primary message of the church. It is the thing preached. It's the tradition that has been passed on that is of first importance, he says. And so for this section, 12 to 19, Paul draws out the logical consequences of their denial of the resurrection. 
See, what they're not putting together is that their false premise, the thing that they're wrongly believing, it leads to a disastrous outcome for their souls. Without the resurrection, their faith will prove to be a house of cards. It all begins with the basic belief that the dead are not raised. That's what they're saying. The thing to understand is that what we believe actually has repercussions for our faith and our lives. And so Paul traces out these logical consequences by, by giving us three if statements. So if statement number one is this, if the dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, look at verses 12 and 13. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Paul again asserts what he's just taught. We've looked at this over the past couple of weeks, those first 11 verses. That is that Christ is proclaimed as resurrected. In fact, an ancient and common Christian greeting known as the Pascal greeting. Do you know it? He is risen. Hey, good job. He's risen indeed. That was actually a, an ancient greeting. Um, it wasn't in the tradition I grew up in. I never kind of saw that. I always thought it was a little weird. Uh, must be something the Lutherans did or something. <laughs> but it's actually across um, countries and cultures and all over the place throughout history. That would be how Christians would greet each other, and not just on Easter. Some of them in the Corinthian church here, as we've seen, this is a church that is rife with divisions and factions, so it's not hard to believe that there would be arguments on even such a basic doctrine like this, but some of them there are going around saying that there is no resurrection. We can tell by Paul's writing here that he's actually astonished that he has to go there in his, in his instruction of them. How can this be, he's saying? If he lived in another place, he might say, inconceivable. Now, we're not exactly sure why they believe this. Um, we don't know why some of them have started to believe that there is no resurrection. But as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the thing I want you to notice about this is that, or one of the things, is that his correction of them is not as abrupt, it's not as harsh as the one that he gives to the Galatians, where he opens his letter by saying this. In, in Galatians 1, 6-9, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Evidently, the Corinthians aren't quite as far down that theological road as the Galatians were. And again, another bit of evidence for this is that back in verse 1 of this chapter, he calls them brothers, brethren, right? 
These were Christians who were evidently being persuaded in their thinking by some kind of outside influence. Um, Scholars have made lots of guesses as to what this influence was, but it's likely that they were falling into the same kind of false belief that plagued the Jewish Sadducees and maybe even a little bit after this, the Gnostics. And that is that the physical and the spiritual are just separate things. The physical and the spiritual are separate things, they believed. This is the belief that the soul is immortal, but the body is evil and cannot inherit the spiritual. The body must be put to death so that the spirit can be released. The kind of dualism, and it's prevalent in Greek thought. It's also possible, kind of combined with that, even though it doesn't really fit well, um, this is more in line with what the Sadducees believed, they denied any kind of afterlife existence at all, like a fatalism. Leads people to believe that they can live their best lives now, to eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Paul will actually quote that a little bit later in this chapter. This is a common thought. They were, they were going along with the world. Our, in our day, we, we appeal to science, right? Science says bodies don't come back from the dead. If they're dead, they're dead. The Roman philosopher Seneca, who was alive during this time period, he explained these common beliefs like this. He said, death either annihilates us or strips us bare. If we are then released, there remains the better part after the burden has been withdrawn. If we are annihilated, nothing remains. Good and bad are alike removed. Plato put it like this. He said, the soul is entirely fastened and welded to the body and is compelled to regard realities through the body as through prison bars. So death, in this view, is either annihilation, it is either the end, or it is a a release, like a freeing from prison, from this world and and the suffering that's associated with it. These views are all over the place today. Can you see why, for an increasing number of people, suicide seems so attractive? Because if this is true then death is either just an end of all of our suffering or it is a release from our suffering where we can truly live. It's one of those two things, so we might as well get rid of this body. There are all kinds of people, even Christians, who believe that one day we will be set free from this mortal coil, and by that they simply mean the physical body. And that's combined in sort of a weird way with this fatalism that that this life is all that there is. But all of this leads only to hopelessness. Hopelessness. Because look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Let me change the subject for a second. Do you know why Lazarus was raised from the dead? Do you know why Lazarus was raised from the dead? The story's in John chapter 11. It's pretty much the whole chapter. John tells us that Jesus purposefully waited until Lazarus had died before he and his disciples went to visit. I don't want to read the whole chapter. I just want to read a couple of verses that answer the question of why Jesus or Lazarus had to die and be raised. 
There's actually three or maybe four reasons, at least that I could think of. The first is pretty explicit. It's John chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So that you may believe. That's the first reason that Lazarus had to die. And of course, we find out later in the story, be raised. The second reason that he had to die and be raised is found in verses 25 to 27. So John eleven twenty five says, Jesus said to her, that is Martha, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So that we would believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Lazarus had to die so that we would believe. Lazarus had to die and be raised so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But the third reason that Lazarus had to die and be raised from the dead is actually found down in verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So this is the reason, to prove that there is a resurrection. To prove that there is a resurrection. He had said to Martha back in verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said this to her as her brother was in the tomb freshly three days. He said this to, to her as she felt the sting of death. Do you believe? Lazarus was once dead but now is alive. Now that story, when you read it, if you're like me, you probably have a few questions. Did he die again? Right? And the Bible really doesn't answer those questions, but what that does is it proves to everyone who is there, even Jesus' enemies, that there is a resurrection from the dead. Now, the reason I said there may be four here is because I think this also implicitly confirms the true humanity of Jesus. Not only is Jesus truly God, but he is also truly man in the same way that Lazarus was truly man. And so from all of this, we can logically conclude this. If there is no resurrection, then the man Jesus Christ could not have risen. This brings us to if statement number two. If Christ has not been raised... If Christ has not been raised, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our teaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Be because Jesus was, is fully man, truly man, yet supernaturally and, and physically rose from the dead. 
and because he's also fully or, or truly God, even the promised Messiah, the Son of God, come into the world. Because of this, we preach Christ crucified and risen. However, if he has not been raised, then that message which is of first importance is meaningless. And Christianity is moralism at best. Vanity of vanities at worst. All we are, we would say, is dust in the wind. (laughs) So if we think of this as an if-then statement, we could say it like this. If Christ has not been raised, then, and there are six thens that Paul addresses here. I'm going to break this up into two sections. So there's three and three. So the first then, the first result is this. If Christ is still dead, then the thing we preach has no power or no value at all. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel he was eager to preach is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But if you take the resurrection out of that, then it certainly is not good news. This would actually make me one of the absolute worst motivational speakers in the world. (laughs) Why? Because my message is essentially, you can't do anything without Christ, and if he's dead, then we are all doomed. If Christ has not been raised, then my message which is just simply the tradition that I've received and have given my life and career to pass on to you, it's bogus. Everything stands or falls on the truth of the assertion that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So if Christ has not been raised, then the message of the church for millennia is in vain. It is useless. But even worse... The second logical conclusion is that your faith is a delusion. If Christ has not been raised, then everything that you have believed about him is completely discredited. This means that the gospel isn't good news at all, but rather it is a cruel hoax with no power to save, no power to change lives. It's simply deception. Furthermore, The third then consequence that Paul brings up here is that this calls the the trustworthiness of the apostles or really all of the eyewitnesses that are mentioned up up in verses 5 to 8 there. It calls their credibility into question. If Christ has not been raised, then why would those who have claimed to to have seen him, why would they be trustworthy? In fact, why would any of the New Testament be trustworthy? If Christ has not been raised, then every single author of the New Testament, of of any New Testament book, is a liar and a blasphemer. They're purposefully, he says, misrepresenting God. Of course, this means actually that we could go on to say that if the dead are not raised, then the God of the Bible is just like all of the other so called gods powerless. Essentially irrelevant at best or an awful tyrant at worst. Sending his own kid to the cross 
as the Union Seminary president claimed. You can see how this all falls apart without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This brings us to the, th- the third if statement and the second um, grouping of three then statements. The third if statement is actually kind of the same as the second, but it has some deeper theological consequences. If Christ has not been raised, verses 17 to 19. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So there are there three more then statements that follow this if, three more consequences. And we actually could put the first one like this. If your faith is futile, then the logical consequence is that you are still dead in your sins. Now remember, he... He's talking to churchgoers, those who claim Christ specifically in the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth. And like all Christians, the forgiveness of sins is important. In fact, it's the backbone of the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. For our sins. If Christ was not raised, then Peter's claims in in 1 Peter 2.24 are wrong. Peter said this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If Christ has not been raised, then that's pointless. Or John 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he said this, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If Christ has not been raised, then Christians from all over the world, both Jew and Gentile, are still under condemnation. How about the Apostle Paul himself? Writing to the Romans in chapters 4 and 5, he speaks of faith and he says this at the end of chapter 4, it, faith, will be counted to us who believed in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or consider the preacher of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 14, he says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and none of those verses are true and we are dead men walking. We can only cry out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And there will be no answer. Only condemnation. The next logical consequence, it gets worse. The next logical consequence is this, if your faith is futile, then those believers who have died before us remain in the clutches 
of death. They have perished. We all have people that we have loved in this life who have hoped in Christ and that we hope to one day see again. Both of my grandmothers, Betty and Rachel, loved Jesus Christ and I miss them. One grandfather, Merle was his name, Merle Ford. He was a Pentecostal lay preacher, and he loved Jesus Christ. We all know that there are saints, even that we have buried here at this church. Just in the last few years, I think of Phyllis and Doris. Juanita. We all have children, or many of us have children who have gone before us that we long to meet one day. And if Christ is not raised, then there will be no resurrection for Christians and there is no hope of heaven, no hope of an eternity with Christ. If the word of the cross is folly, then we are all perishing. Can you feel the hope just kind of fading? Well, there's one more consequence, and it's verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection, then all of our hope is smashed against the rocks. If our hope in Christ lasts only for this life, then we're the most pathetic creatures imaginable, having no hope and without God in the world. Without the resurrection, then all of this is make-believe. Even worse than that, Christianity could be seen as the, the worst of all religions because it, because it brings suffering and self-denial to its followers. Jesus called us to take up our own cross daily to follow him. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. But this is not the way you learned Christ. I would tell you that the most important words in the Bible are those words, but God. Right? But God. I hesitated even to stop here because this is such a downer of a paragraph. But I believe this shows us the depths of our hope. Why? 
Because Christ has been raised. He has been raised. He is risen. Let me close by reading from Colossians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says here in verses 9, starting in verse 9. He says, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then down in chapter 3, he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He has risen and we we have been raised up with him. And so I can just close by saying it one more time and and you can respond. He is risen. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, as we look at this passage, see that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, without our future hope, without the hope that we have of Christ, of the good news of the gospel, there is no hope. We might as well, as Paul says, eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. But praise be to God, you have raised him from the dead. Praise be to God that there is a resurrection. That we caught a glimpse of it with Lazarus and Jesus' power over death but we see its glory in Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, ascended to your right hand, where he reigns. Lord, we long for the day when we will, yes, be united, reunited with loved ones who have trusted in you, but we long for the day when we can see Jesus Christ face to face, when we can hear him say, you are my people and I am your God. When you will dwell with your people forever. When all death is done away with, we long for that day, Lord. We hold fast to the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Father, we rejoice in that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.